0: Galatians chapter 1, the first 10 verses, Paul writing to these churches in the area of Galatia, and he has established essentially that he has an exclusive and true gospel. And he has gotten right to the problem that the people in the church were beginning to think about and weigh and possibly believe a different gospel. And Paul was very direct as to That being a pretty big problem, even pronouncing an anathema on himself, any other human being and supernatural being that would show up and give them a different gospel. So what he's going to do now in verse 11 down really through the rest of chapter 2 is he's going to basically establish this idea further. Uh, If you, you would ask, how can Paul claim an exclusive gospel well what he's going to show is because it's from god that's the only way it can be exclusive and he's going to show that the way i received the gospel was from the lord and particularly that it wasn't connected to jerusalem or the original apostles that the work that god did in his life and the gospel he shared it was in agreement with them but it was independent of them it was something that god was doing And these particular Judaizers or false teachers, one of the things that they did is they leveraged their being from Jerusalem or saying they were from James or saying they were connected to the other apostles against Paul. So he's going to kind of lay this out through the rest of the chapter here. Let's begin in verse 11. He says, But I make known to you, brethren that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul says he didn't receive that gospel that he shared from man, or the idea is any uh, other individual that taught him this thing. Neither I received, nor was I taught it, didn't come from any schools or direct learning but it came through direct revelation from God so the gospel Paul preached it wasn't from the church or tradition he's saying Jesus himself literally showed up and gave me this message this is this is how I received the gospel it was a unique thing that happened in this apostle's life it wasn't tied to human beings at all it came to me as direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. I also just want to make mention. Notice right in verse 11 as he begins this whole argument. Again, I think this is important for Paul. He says I make known to you you could skip over this word brethren. He's he's writing this letter of correction, but he constantly claims these believers as his brothers and sisters in Christ. And I just think Paul's such a great example for us as of somebody who speaks directly, doesn't allow things to slide, but yet is always loving and embracing the family of God, even those that are really kind of struggling in some major ways. So thinking of them as brethren, he's acknowledging this issue now, and he's going to begin to build that, here's how I can exclaim this, or, claim this exclusive and true gospel starts out, I didn't get it from any human being. Literally, Jesus himself exploded into my life in a supernatural way and gave me this message. Now, he's going to build on that, verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of Of my father. So now Paul throws in a bit of his testimony here, and he's going to show that he wasn't ignorant of the law or its implications. In fact, not only was he not ignorant of it, he was a major, we'll say, influencer and driver of it. He understood that the law was in direct conflict with Christianity probably better than most. Because, he says, I was zealous. I advanced in Judaism. I understand this world. I know this message. And I know that it doesn't fit with Christianity. And I was the head of the spear that was working against this. He himself was that individual. Judaism preached Moses, or the law, not Christ. Again, Acts 15.21 says, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Paul says, I, I understand. You know what my life was. I understand who these Judaizers are. I was them and a worse version of them. And I get that Christianity is in conflict with the law. He, he was that person. Now, he goes on. He had been talking about himself. He was speaking about I and his unsaved state in 13 and 14. Now in 15 through 17, he's going to speak about what God did. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. So he's saying, Look, this is who I was. That changed because of Jesus Christ, but God, because it was his pleasure. That's the only way Paul could say it. He wouldn't have been saved otherwise in his own pleasure and in his own grace, who call me from my mother's womb, basically. And we have pictures of that. Isaiah 49, uh, Cyrus, God calls before he's born. Jeremiah 1, God speaks to him, says he knows him before he was born. Romans 9 talks about God knowing. Jacob and Esau in the womb and the prophecies there. The, the reality here that God understands us before we even enter into the world, the scriptures are clear about that. But particularly, Paul's point is, it was God's pleasure and grace that were the means of transforming the one who was totally against this message into the main preacher of it. This is the Lord. This was literally divine intervention. He had all the religious pedigree, all the religious background, all the religious works, but he still needed to be saved, notice 15, through his grace. That's, that's how I was called. That's how I came to know him. That's how I came to be a preacher of him. And the reality he found in 16 was God revealing his son in me. It wasn't just that he discovered this message. Paul's very life and person, not just his expansive intellect. His literal person was a revelation of the life of God. He was he was a changed human being. And that was only because of who the Lord was and God's grace in his life. And his whole preaching among the Gentiles, all the ministry that happened, Paul just ties that back to Christ. He just says, "It's Christ in me over and over again. The... He saw his ministry not as his ministry. It was Christ's ministry through him. And he could constantly go back to that and champion that grace in his life. And what Paul wants them to see here is, like, nobody, no human being did this. Only God did this. And I didn't make it up myself. It certainly wasn't my works. I had the whole Judaism background. I understand the system. But I didn't have God's grace in my life through that. It was only when he revealed his son in me that things began to change. And he made me a preacher to the Gentiles that I might preach him, he says, among the Gentiles. Notice, him being Jesus, not Moses. Preach him among the Gentiles. And Paul was surrendered to that fact gladly. And I do think for some of us, obviously he's speaking here for a specific reason, but we can widen this and say it's important for all of us at some point in our life to come to the place where we surrender to the fact that it's God's pleasure and grace that we are who we are and where we are. Uh, I think if Paul's a normal guy, you probably could have talked to him, and I'm sure there are times in his life he thought, man, God, how come you couldn't have appeared to me a few years earlier? <laughs> right? How come you couldn't have just called me when you were here on earth? I wouldn't have killed people. I wouldn't have had this back. I'm sure there are times where Paul himself probably thought those things. But in the end, the fact that I'm saved, the fact that I'm doing what I'm doing, because it pleased God. This is all part of his plan from the beginning. He knew me before I was separated from my mother's womb. His background as a Jew, but also with that Gentile background and Roman citizenship, his intellect, his understanding, who God made him, how he was set up. His life was set up for God's purposes. And Paul was surrendered to that. And the reality is, that's what's true about all of us who we are, where we are. People can struggle in cultures. We could be mixed in cultures. We could struggle to fit in or find our place in certain areas or wonder why certain things are happening in our life. When the reality is, I have to surrender to the fact, Lord, this is what pleases you. Who I am, what nation I am in, what area or time I live in, white, black, Asian, Indian, male, female, whatever it is, I surrender to that. Lord, somehow this is where I can best find my way to you and please you. Again, Paul would preach to a larger crowd in Acts 17, verses 26 and 27, and say, He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God put us where we are and who we are and how we are Because this is, for some reason, the best place for you or I to find our way toward him. Even though he's not far from any one of us. That's what Paul will say to a wider crowd. God did this on purpose. Might not know all the details, but that's what he says. And, you know, there's different ways we struggle with that in life. But I think if we want to serve him, there has to come a place where we can say what Paul said here in verse 15. I'm, I'm where I am because this is what pleased God before I was even born. And by his grace, I can walk with him here. And he will reveal his son in me. For Paul, this is his specific calling, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And notice he said, when he received that, and this is literally Jesus told him that. We have that a couple times through Acts. Paul mentions Literally, Jesus is speaking to him about going to send him out and the things he would do. He says, But immediately I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So here Paul makes it clear that after he's saved, he says, I didn't go to Jerusalem. So this, this kind of hub that the Judaizers always talk about, I never went there. And I didn't go with the other apostles. I didn't have interactions with them. In fact, I went to, he says, Arabia. We're not sure. He just tells us the general area. And he was there, we're going to see, at least for three years. Seems like he was working things out with the Lord. Some people think he might have gone to Mount Sinai, pulled a, you know, a Moses or an Elijah type thing there and... This guy with this incredible intellect who had given his whole life to serving God in one way is now sitting out there after he met Jesus and trying to understand how does this all work together now. And Paul has his own time in isolation. That's the point here directly. Certainly God is working with him. Uh, and preparation for God's work in our life is important for all of us. Obviously there's no substitute for the presence of God and a person being alone with him. Bible school can't teach what Moses learned when he took off his sandals and knelt down on holy ground. Only God teaches those things. And we see that example, Moses, 40 years, obviously on the backside of the desert. We have Elijah, all we know about him is he was praying before he showed up. David out there in the fields learning what it is to walk with the Lord and then numerous years as an outlaw. Joseph, his years in slavery, falsely accused. You just kind of go down the list, the disciples' time, obviously with Jesus, and now it seems like Paul has his own kind of three-year period here where the Lord's working on his heart and life. But he says, I didn't go get this gospel or my message from some other person. Like, this is what happened to me. My life has radically changed and I end up in Arabia for three years. Not sure what that looks like. Then he goes on, verse 18, he's going to continue his story. So he says, Then after three years I went to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James the, James the Lord's brother. Now concerning these things which I write to you, indeed before God I do not lie. Paul's basically saying, I'm not lying about this story. He says "I wasn't. Lo- he wasn't long in Damascus or Jerusalem when he came back. Uh, We do know from the book of Acts that he was preaching and people were trying to kill him. So he comes out of Arabia. He's already preaching the gospel. He was alone for three years. He didn't get it from anybody, any of the apostles or anybody from Jerusalem there. He enters into Jerusalem and he says, when I got to Jerusalem, all I did is he says he went to admit or he admits that he went to see Peter. The language has the idea of simply an informal visit. It wasn't an official like, hey, let's copy down the story or something. He's going to go meet Peter, talk with him. Uh, you, you got to imagine that was a pretty interesting conversation. <laughs> you know, they could probably talk about what Jesus looked like. That was pretty interesting, what Jesus said, what Jesus was teaching Paul, and what Peter might have had to say to him. But uh, he says, the only other apostle I saw was James. That's not James, one of the original 12, but James, the half-brother of Jesus, mentioned in Matthew 13 and Mark 6. So, his point here is, in 15 days, and with a short discussion with Peter and an intro to James, he didn't have time to get his whole gospel and ministry from all the apostles or from Jerusalem. That's, That's the point he's still making here over and over again. He's just saying, I was already preaching this gospel when I showed up there. This is... This is kind of how he's laying out what he's already established and what he's going to continue to establish. Now, he's going to continue on in that. Afterwards, he says, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. So Paul wasn't long there, that point, he goes to Sirius Cilicia, we're going to see, for like 11 to 14 years. Um, And people kind of debate because they're not sure is is his timeline from when he got saved or from this point in the storyline. Either way, his larger point is simply, for a long time, I wasn't in Jerusalem. I wasn't connected with the guys there. I wasn't connected with these apostles. We don't totally know what Paul was doing in a lot of these years, uh, but he, he wasn't um, directly receiving the gospel he preached again from these guys. In fact, he says in 22, I was totally unknown by face to the churches in Judea. One, they were scared of him, because they're like, isn't that the guy that persecuted us? So a lot of people were a little afraid to get close to him. And the people who weren't afraid to get close, they wouldn't have known him to see him. He's like, if I could have walked in their house, they would have no idea who I was. And he says, but they glorify God because they heard he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. Again, they weren't suspicious of his gospel. They heard that he was preaching and they glorify God. The the guy who was most against us, who we were most afraid might kick the door into our house and drag our family away because we're Christians, is now preaching the faith. This was his story here. And anyone, I think, that, again, would begin to doubt Paul's kind of apostleship and say either it was different from the apostles uh, because they don't know who he is or what he's doing or... They would say, he's not connected with these apostles like we are. Paul's whole point is, yeah, you're right. I got this gospel independent of them. Although, it was not different. As we see, he continues to build. Chapter 2. So, verse 1, Paul will say, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So 14 years after this, and he's been preaching the gospel the whole time, and people have been getting saved, Paul's continuing his defense here. Uh, these events he's going to talk about. He says, I go back up to Jerusalem. There's a little bit of debate because Paul went up once when there was a famine to bring an offering. And then again in Acts 15, where there's this council in Jerusalem where they're deciding on the issues of faith and what Gentiles need to do to be saved. Um, This event he's talking about is the Acts 15 event uh, because if it was the earlier event, then there would be no reason to have the Acts 15 event because they hammer out the issue here. So this is the Acts 15 event that he's mentioning. It would have been redundant otherwise. So he says, I go back to Jerusalem, not because he needs their approval, but he says, notice, by revelation, God told me to go up to Jerusalem. We don't have that in the scripture. We don't know exactly what the Lord said. I think what we have, though, and what is clear is Paul's realizing God wanted to make the issue clear in the church between Jew and Gentile about what they needed for salvation. And he said, by direct revelation, God kind of set this up. So he says, I went up and he says, I took Barnabas and Titus with me. Uh, I believe he mentions those two because they were with him, but also Barnabas and Titus would both likely be very known by those Galatian churches. And Titus was important because Titus is going to become example A or exhibit A of the whole discussion because he's a Gentile guy who's not circumcised, right? So he's bringing Titus with him and he's like, we're going to have a big argument about you, Titus, right? Essentially, this whole argument about the gospel, we're going to look you in the face and say, does this guy need to get circumcised right now to be saved? So Titus had to be a pretty brave guy to go along with this too. So, or somebody who was a bit of a provocateur. But, you know, he went. So Paul mentions these guys are with him. Paul then tells us that he met privately, notice he says, with those who were of reputation, speaking of the disciples here, uh, he wanted to make sure that they were on the same page because he says, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. The idea is being when Paul goes up and finally meets with some of the apostles about the doctrine and the gospel he's been preaching, if they don't agree, he realizes that's going to really undercut my ministry. This is going to cause a division and a problem. So before they get into this bigger council, he says, I even met with some of these who were of repute beforehand. And apparently, they all realized they were agreed before this discussion kind of even got started. James and Peter are going to stand up. In Acts 15, you can reread that if you want a little uh, refresher. But the, I, the simple idea is Paul presented what he was preaching for 14 years, and those apostles agreed with it. Uh, he, he, he had not changed it at all. Uh, as a little aside, as we read down, we're going to see this. When he says those who are of reputation... He's gonna talk like that a couple times. It can seem, as we read through this, that it's combative or almost slanderous, like Paul's kind of downing the other apostles, uh, which is not what he's doing because he would undercut his own argument. It was, it was part of what he's saying here is that we were preaching the same gospel. It's just he was independent of them. What what he's using is the language most believe that the the false teachers were using of these guys. They would, we'll say in our language, name drop, right? James and Peter and these other apostles, John. Oh yeah, these people agree with us where Acts 15 tells us James is like, I didn't send them, right? So these false teachers were coming, name dropping those who are of repute against, as like against Paul, like you're not part of that group. So Paul says, I met with those who were of repute not to slam the apostles, but really as a shot at the false teachers. That's the context as we read through here for you. So uh, they wanted to discredit Paul by talking about the apostles in this way. So verse 3, he says, Yet not even Titus who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So Paul's saying now, okay, they're telling you guys that you need to get circumcised to be saved. He says, when I brought Titus to Jerusalem with the apostles... A Greek who was uncircumcised, they did not tell him to be circumcised. That was huge. It was a big thing for Paul to be able to say here. He was not put under the law. Though there were some that argued for it, the apostolic teachers, those who were of repute, Paul says, never wavered in their message. There were those who wanted that, the conflict came, Paul says, notice, from false brethren, the idea is pseudo, literally not part of the brotherhood, who came in by stealth, they wormed their way into the meeting as spies, to bring us into bondage. They wanted to see the liberty of the message in the gospel so that they could work their way around it and bring people back into bondage. Some things never change, right? There's still religious leadership gatherings where these things are happening all over the world. There are people who want to hear the truth and find a way to work around it and bring people into bondage one way or another. Again, Acts 15.1 tells us, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised of Moses, you cannot be saved. So Paul says, this group was there, they snuck in, they brought this up and made a fight, but he says Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. So these things are important because Paul is making it clear that the fight that was happening in these Galatian churches presently had already been fought and decided in Antioch and Jerusalem. So this, this has already been hashed out here, but these certain men were still coming in and saying these things, and the scripture says, which I, I think is great, uh, verse 5, we didn't yield submission even for an hour. In uh, Acts it says they had no small dissension and dispute with them. I'm sure they did. Like I'm sure you didn't want to get in a big argument with Paul and Barnabas. And he, Paul says that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Here's why we didn't even give it an inch, so that you can continue to walk in the truth of the gospel. We weren't going to allow someone destroy this. Paul would fight for it. He said, I'm not going to give an hour to a false version of this. They had no small dispute about it. Now, verse 6. He says, But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. So, 6, again, he's speaking about these apostles, those who seem to be something, again, probably using that language that the false brethren would use, he's recognizing, in essence, their status. He's going to say they were pillars, but he's not going to say they were superior to him. That's Paul's kind of whole point here. Like, you guys are leveraging the superiority of Peter or those over me when there's no difference in our message and I didn't get my apostleship from them. That's just his point here as he lays it all out. His apostleship and gospel were independent, came directly from Jesus Christ. And that argument was powerful because it was in direct contrast to the false teachers who were constantly coming saying, we have authority because we're connected to Jerusalem or the apostles. And Paul was like, I have authority. I wasn't connected to Jerusalem or the apostles. It came direct from Jesus Christ. Although we're on the same team too. And they also got their authority by Jesus Christ, by the way. So these things would be powerful as the Galatians were hearing them, and Paul was laying these things out. So Paul says, not only did they, he says, God doesn't show personal favoritism to anybody, but he says, they added nothing to me. The the idea there is not that, like, Paul needed them for stature or something, he's saying they didn't see my gospel as deficient. There wasn't something they were like, hey, you need to add this to your message. He's, he's saying we are, we're on the same page. Verse 7, contrary, on the contrary, when they saw the gospel for the uncircumcised have been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, and they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. So far from disagreement... Paul says, essentially, when I finally did meet up with the apostles, James and John and Peter, the people who were pillars, who were something, not only did they not have a different gospel, and not only did they not add anything to me, and not only did they not tell my buddy Titus to get circumcised, he said, we agreed that we were serving the Lord together. And we saw the Lord's hand, their agreement was not like, hey, we're going to set up this plan and do it ourselves because we're the apostles and we run the world. The agreement was just, we see what God is doing in your life, and you see what God is doing in our lives, and we're just ratifying that and saying, go do it, brother. Which I think is pretty remarkable here. It says, they saw that God was working in me and in us, Paul and Barnabas, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. That They had a particular effective ministry in going to Gentiles. And we saw that God had done that with Peter and John and James. They had a particular effective ministry in going to the Jews and sharing the gospel. And God had called us into these two spheres. And we recognized that together. There's no jealousy. There was no battling. The world was big enough. They had plenty to do. They probably wanted more laborers to join and be a part of it. And they agreed in honoring one another and encouraging one another in what the Lord had called them to do. It's a pretty interesting group, unity and diversity with these men. Uh, Four of these guys end up writing 21 or 22 books of the New Testament out of the 27. Depends on who wrote Hebrews. Right? If it was Paul, then 22. So uh, the you know what, what a unique group of guys that get together for a little bit and then really go back out into the world. We don't know how often they were together again or if all of them were ever together again. But I think it's unique to see that the, the differences of style and emphasis and callings that we see in the plan of God are a part of the plan of God although there was no difference in the gospel or the word that they preached. The gospel and the truth were the same. The people, the personalities, the sphere, those things were all different. And we should, I think, again, be appreciative. I think everybody realizes there's certain individuals that minister to other individuals more than others. God has set things up like that. He's designed people certain ways, and you're going to, find certain people with an emphasis or a slant that make it easier to minister to you or have a similar life or background that make it easier to minister to you and that's wonderful but we shouldn't write off the other people or pit them against one another that was what was happening in corinth all these guys who are on the same team paul or peter or apollos or barnabas or whatever they're i'm of this person or this person or this person or you know then the ultimate holy person is like i just follow jesus so like you can't be ministered to by anybody else so you know god sets it up these guys have a particular ministry to jews these guys have a particular ministry to the gentiles god has called them that way they recognize it and they're going out and they're on the same page the judaizers are pitting them against one another and i think it was important for the people in the book of galatians that would hear this to say okay They're on the same team. I think it's important for us to appreciate the body of Christ, even somebody who maybe isn't going to be your favorite, uh, to say, you know what, Uh, just because I have a favorite doesn't mean I write off others. And it's important that there are people out there that can also minister. I appreciate the body of Christ, and I appreciate uh, so many godly men and women in all different, we'll say, camps or families in the body of Christ that are serving him and have served him. And I think we need to pray for more of them and not take out some that just aren't our favorite, right? Or write them off one way or another. So, And these two men, or two groups of men now, are going to go do the thing that the Lord called them to do. Paul says the only thing they desire that we should do is remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. Poor, probably... In Jerusalem, but also in general. Uh, It was an example of Jesus Christ. We know even though he was poor, he gave to the poor. And we see this certainly through church history. And these guys were happy to be a part of that wherever they went. So now, verse 11, he's going to build one more kind of a moment off of this that would be important for these Galatians. He says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, so we have a change of scenery. Somewhere after this meeting in Acts 15, Peter gets to Antioch where Paul is, which is a Gentile arena. He says, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself fearing those who are of the circumcision and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy so we have an issue Paul says when an issue finally did arise he said didn't arise with me it came with Peter and I don't think Paul is slamming Peter here I don't believe that's what his aim is and certainly Peter I think we could sure give him credit you know, there are people who sometimes can put their foot in their mouth or be a little overly zealous about things. But when a person like Peter can admit it and humble themselves, that's, that's wonderful. And Peter's a good example in that. And Peter will write in Second Peter about Paul and the ministry he has in the Lord and even liken Paul's writings to the other scriptures, which is important. So these guys didn't have a beef after this. I think there's the reason the Holy Spirit knew this was important to share is because it's showing that even the very apostles felt and understood the struggle to be pulled back to these legalistic things. Peter, who literally had a vision from Jesus about animals where he tells them to kill and eat, he says, no, Lord, he tells them, no, what I've called clean, you shouldn't call unclean. Then he goes to Cornelius' house and sees Gentiles saved. Peter, who stands up in Acts 15 and says very clearly, no, we can't put them back under this yoke or burden that we ourselves couldn't carry. Peter understood the truth. But he was a Jew, and he still struggled. And here he makes a mistake. And I think it was important for the Galatians to stand strong, to repent, and even understand hey, we're not the only people that ever made this mistake. It's part of the reason people love Peter, because they can relate to his mistakes. We could say, yeah, okay, I get that. I've been there. I've done that. And I think it was important uh, for these Galatian believers to know this and to see it, and also to see why Paul had to stand up. So I think that's why Paul is sharing this. So he says Peter is sitting and eating with the Gentile believers before religious Jews... Who falsely claimed authority from James, Acts fifteen, five and twenty-four, show up. And when they show up, the scripture says he verse twelve separated himself. Uh, Vine says the wording was used for trimming or lowering sails, which gives you a picture, right? He, Peter gets a little a little awkward when these religious Jews who would show up and say they had authority from Jerusalem come, not because I, he was shaky on the doctrine. Paul here says through the Holy Spirit, fearing those who are of the circumcision. I, I think Peter just probably didn't want to have to deal with them. Right? Probably didn't want to get in an argument, probably knew it was going to be an issue. He probably could have easily convinced himself, I'll oh, well, be easier if I just go sit with these guys. And we don't know how long this has been going on, how long Peter had been there. But the point is, there was an obvious change in Peter's actions when these religious Jews showed up. And it was clear to see. And Paul's problem here is that Peter's example even led others astray. This fear of man, which we know always brings a snare, leads him astray, but he says, even Barnabas gets pulled aside. Paul's pretty shocked, I think, that Barnabas got caught up in this. And uh, Paul says he became a hypocrite. He was carried away, he says, with their hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, hypocrisy of it was just that Peter was not acting according to his convictions. Peter was play acting. That's what hypocrisy is. He was doing something he didn't really mean, or even want. And we understand this in our culture. There's pressure. You know, sometimes, even just saying you're a Christian is pressure. You know, I, I understand if somebody's talking to me somewhere and they say, "Hey, what do you?" and I say, "I'm a pastor." That means something. Right? If you just say, "Oh, I work with kids at a school" or something, that that's different. If you say, I go to Calvary Chapel or, you know, I'm a student at Calvary Christian Academy, that, that says something. You name the name of Christ, you throw it out there. Uh, I think, you know, we all feel the pressure to, to no, we're not going to deny what we know is true, but the pressure is to not act in accordance with it. And Peter becomes a hypocrite here because he does not act according to what he knew about the gospel. He failed to live out the gospel's practical applications, the truth that he knew. If God accepts us into fellowship, how can they break fellowship then? If God calls Gentiles clean, why would he act like they were unclean? And Paul knew this is a really important moment because the Jews were looking and the Gentiles were looking. And it was important for people to understand what was happening. Verse 14. So Paul says, When I saw that they were not straightforward, walking straight-footedly, about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles, and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? Paul says... I had to step in I had to say something to Peter he knew that the truth of the gospel was at stake if it was not okay for Peter to sit and eat with Gentiles because it didn't fit the Jewish religious dietary law then Christianity wasn't about Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit anymore it was just another way of being a religious Jew does that make sense? If if it was wrong for him to sit there and do that because of the Jewish dietary law, then Christianity wasn't about the work of Christ. It was still about the law, and it was just another way of being a religious Jew. And Paul says, I stood up for the truth of the gospel. This was wrong. It was hypocritical. And the public sin receives a public reproof. Paul says, I said to Peter, notice, before them all, And I think it's always important for us to speak the truth in love, to speak clearly and honestly with folks, even if you know they're not going to like maybe what you say. But it's way better to talk in front of all instead of hide things when something needs to be addressed, especially if it is a public thing that's happening. And Paul says, I said this in front of everyone, and it was important for everyone to hear at that point. Paul would say in Philippians 3, we know these verses, what things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, who I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul's saying, you're acting like your righteousness is based on the law right now, Peter. You're acting like your righteousness is based on the law. It's wrong for you. It's wrong for the Jews to see who you're going to go share the gospel with. And it's wrong for the Gentiles to see who we're sharing the gospel with, who you were just eating a BLT with. Right? This is wrong. And I think Peter knew it. I think Peter knew it in that moment. He says, if you, again, verse 15 there, or excuse me, 14, if you being a Jew live by the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles. The idea is they used to, they weren't sinners like the Gentiles the, for keeping the law was uh, what made or broke somebody as a sinner. And he's saying, we, we weren't godless. We had the law. We weren't sinners the same way as them. But he says, now we're living like the Gentiles. We're free from the law, even though we're Jews by nature. 16, and we know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Notice he said that three times in that verse, over and over and over again. Nobody is justified by works of the law. Justification, the pardoning of sin, happens by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. And he says, even we, the Jews, have believed in Jesus. We who used to keep the law, we believe in Jesus for righteousness. Don't you see this, Peter? He makes it clear, notice, no flesh that's Jew or Gentile or all of humanity can be justified, pronounced legally righteous before God by works. Nobody will do, and again, you're like, well, nobody's telling me I have to get circumcised to get saved. Of course, that's true. But this is still true about the general good works idea that's out there. If I'm a basic good person, then I get into heaven. No, no flesh is justified by works. No flesh. Do you have flesh? You won't be justified by works. Are you a human being? You cannot stand before God based on your own good works. Even if your good works outweighed your bad works, you still are not good enough. Works cannot earn you salvation. The gospel is not the good news of what we must do to be saved. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf so that God can pronounce us justified, justly. He is both just and the justifier of those who are saved. God can righteously pronounce us justified because of his works, because of the debt Jesus paid, not because of what I did or will ever do. And that is the message of the gospel, and it's what Paul had been preaching, and it's what Peter knew was true, and what Paul had to rebuke him for. So in 17 and 18 now, we're going to see Peter's position, and then in 19 through 21, we see Paul's position. So 17 and 18 is going to give a little argument here, which is a bit confusing, but he says, But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ, therefore, a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So Paul's simply making the point that if Jesus led you out of Moses' law, then going back to it is saying that Jesus is a minister of sin. <laughs> if you, you, you got led out of this by Christ, and now you're acting like you needed it again to be righteous. So what is Jesus making you a sinner? having left it is that is that where we're left in this peter and of course paul says certainly not that's not what's happening he says we can't build again what we destroyed or did away with how how can if i got rid of something how can i build it again then it was a sin to have gotten rid of it in the first place you're sitting here again eating with gentiles and fellowshipping with them those that are uncircumcised, those that aren't eating according to the dietary law, and now you're acting like you have to go back to it. Well, you should have never got rid of it in the first place then. You're a transgressor both ways. I can't add anything to the work of Christ, otherwise there's deficiency in the work of Christ. The minute you have Jesus plus, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus any work of man, there's deficiency in the work of Christ can't go back to those things you can't build something again verse 19 he says for i through the law died to the law that i might live to god this is really a one sentence summary of romans 6 and 7 where he traces this out a whole lot more Uh, but he gives a little compacted version here and he's talking about the law he says if i through the law died to the law the idea being the law condemns all sin and demands death as a penalty. The law caused Paul to die to all hope in himself and all his own works. When he really looked at the law, thou shalt not covet. Okay, go try that. Right? Who, who here can control themselves from covetousness? It's basically the mantra of our society. Paul realized, I, I can't do that. Jesus traced out the law even further. If you even look for a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. The, the law eventually kills everybody. It kills all hope of you working your way to God. That was what the law was good for. Because anybody who was dumb enough to think they could do enough good works would realize, I can't. <laughs> If I look at this honestly, the law kills you and then it pronounces death as the penalty. It demands death and it still does. And again, we're we're in the same way we might not do these things, but I I do think there's still Christians, there's people before they're saved and then even after salvation that never have peace because there's still this element where they're working for something, They're trying to add to the work of Christ. They don't have peace. They ask, why does it seem like God is so severe? How come I don't have rest? Why doesn't God just change me? And the reason is because there's still a false hope in you that needs to be put to death by the law. This is what the law is good for. There's still a part of self that's trying to exalt itself and work itself for recognition. And the law is there to cause you to lose all hope in self and look for all hope in some other place. So it doesn't matter if it was before you were saved or after you were saved. You know, Sometimes somebody gets saved and they walk away for a number of years and they can feel like it's even worse, like I knew better, I knew better. Well, it's still the same message. You weren't saved because of your own works. You never were, you never will be. And when you try to put your works out there, you know what you find? Never good enough. Everybody stands because of the work of Christ in faith. And Paul says, The law killed me. But I died to the law, through the law, that I might live to God. How did he die? If the law is going to save me by killing me, how do I die to the law and live to God? Well, there's only one way, through Christ, which is the intro to verse 20, which we know so well, but I think gives it a good context. I have been crucified with Christ. All that was Saul slash Paul that should have been justly killed by the law died on the cross in the death of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I should have been put to death for the things that I did. But I died there in Jesus. All that was Saul, all that's not good enough, died in him. I was crucified with Christ. There's no middle ground between our death and Christ's life. I have one or the other. Self, the I that was Saul in all its forms, wicked forms, socially acceptable forms refined sin that everybody's cool with it all has to be crucified in Christ it all has to die with him and Jesus died to put an end to our sinful selfish nature to kill it not to cultivate it as is the message out there by some not to adjust to it to kill it but what now Paul still lived He said, I was crucified with Christ, but it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul lived, but it wasn't the old life that was cursed and killed in Christ through the law. There was new life. Christianity is new birth. It's new life. It's a new creation in Jesus Christ. Octavius Winslow, in his book, The Inner Life, I love that name, Octavius Winslow, because he was the eighth child of his parents. So anybody that's got big plans in life, you can hold on to that one there, Octavius. He says this, Thus the true Christian is one who can adopt the expressive and emphatic language of Paul, I live. Amplifying the words, he can exclaim, I live as a quickened soul. I live as a regenerate soul. I live as a pardoned sinner. I live as a justified sinner. I live as an adopted child. I live as an heir of glory. I live and I never lived before. My whole existence until now has been but as a blank. I never truly really lived until I died. I lived, if life it may be called, to the world, to sin, to the creature, to myself. But I never lived by Christ and I never lived to God. That's what it means to be a Christian. I live. It's not me. It's Christ who lives in me. There's a new life, a life that Paul never had outside of that, that didn't come through the law. The law just shows me what my old life is that needs to die. But when it's justly executed, when it's crucified, now I have a new life. And I think that declaration is important for us because it needs to be more than a memory verse. It needs to be the real practical testimony of our lives. We can mentally understand that justification means God has declared me righteous. I can mentally understand that is the message of the Bible. I can mentally understand that sanctification means God makes me into that righteous image. But do I experientially know the life of God that actually does that in me? Those are two different things. Those are two different things. John Wesley thought he was a Christian, traveled to America, and tried to preach as a missionary to the to the Native Americans and got angry because none of them got saved. Then got back to England, and George Whitfield was, was like, you're not actually born again. <laughs> and he got angry. And then he got saved. And guess what? He had the life of Christ in him, a life that was never there before. And The life of God makes our justification, which is a matter of imputation, bloom into sanctification, which is a matter of transformation. What what we say intellectually is happening to us actually happens to us because it's real. Do you know that life in you? Do you know Christ in you? How does Christ live in us? Well, by his Holy Spirit. That's what he says. Romans 8, 10... And 11 say, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus promises life would be in us. Twice in John 17, Paul recognized that life of God in all his ministry. Paul was now living in personal gratitude to that Jesus Christ who lived in him. That's why he says, the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul now lived. He didn't live by his good works and he didn't live by the law of Moses. He lived by trusting in the one who was the very Son of God and the one who loved him by giving himself up for him. That's how Paul lived. That's why any Christian lives. That's why any of us live for the Lord and live in the Lord. It's not because we know the right mental things. It's because we actually have Christ in us. And before we just lived to the world and the flesh and the devil. But now Christ lives in us through his spirit, which is life. This is why Paul cannot and will not set aside the grace of God, because it is the central message of life and love in Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for him. So Paul says, verse 21, I do not set aside, didn't and never would, the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died. In vain. We can't set aside the grace of God for works. That's the idea. Works can't be the basis of our relationship with Him. Hebrews 13 9 says, It's good that the heart is established by grace. It's a good thing. If righteousness comes through our own works, then Christ Christ had no reason to die, no reason to love us by giving Himself for us. That's what Paul says. I set aside the grace of God. If righteousness can come through the law, then Christ died in vain. Peter, if you could be righteous by moving away from Gentiles and sitting with your religious Jews and not eating bacon anymore, why did Jesus die? That's essentially what he's saying. What what was the whole point of it all then? If that's how it can happen, then what are we doing here? I love Paul because this is practical life. If it's not true, then what are we doing? But it is true. And he says, I will not set aside the grace of God for this. And I think it was important for these Galatian believers who were getting one thing from these false teachers about who the apostles were and whatnot to hear this story. Even the apostle Peter messed up in this. He needed to be taught. He needed to be reminded. And he knows the pressure that's there to act in a way that is hypocritical, which means we don't live in reality with the truth that we know. And if even an apostle can make that mistake, these Galatian believers can make that mistake. And it's important for them as well to recognize that mistake, repent of it, and come back to the grace and love of Jesus Christ, as Peter did. And now Paul, in the next couple chapters, if you read ahead, is going to doctrinally lay out why that's important for them. So let's stand. We're going to pray. <clears throat> I will just say this again if you're here tonight and you're not sure if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if Christ lives in you and you think you're going to get to heaven because you've been a good guy or a good lady, you're wrong and you're setting aside the grace of Jesus Christ for your own works. But you can come to him in faith and believe that his works are good enough to save you. And that's the good news that we have. And I encourage you to come talk with us tonight. And, uh, you know, maybe if you're here tonight and you've been a believer, but you walked away from the Lord for a time and you feel like, yeah, but I'm different. No, there's still only one cross. (laughs) And you don't need another Jesus. You just need to be reminded about this Jesus. And just repent. And let him and his life live in you. And he is happy to allow you to realize that yourself should be crucified and find new life in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've given us new life. We thank you for your patience with us to teach us, to instruct us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you would copy these things down through the inspiration of your spirit because you knew that we would have the same temptations thousands of years later. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that certainly the things that we need, uh, what each of us individually needs in our lives, through these reminders that you would give to us as our daily bread. And it could be that word of God that we live by, that comes right from your mouth. So we acknowledge you. We thank you. We love you. And we give you our praise that you came and you loved us and you gave yourself for us. In Jesus' name, amen.